You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode number 166 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Thomas, and with me today are Laurie Norris and special guest Joe Cernelia. Hello, Laurie and Joe. Hey. Hi. Uh, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Laurie, would you mind going first for us today? I would not mind at all. Hi, I am Laurie Norris, and I am a perpetual graduate student at the University of Georgia, where I am waiting for our state legislature to stop doing us dirty and actually give us a cost of living increase so I can pay for the multiple sub pumps that I have to have installed in my house. Sorry, I'm a little distracted because the AquaGuard man was literally just here. Sorry, I'm I, oh some pumps. I uh, I can sympathize with the uh, with the sump issue and uh, with AquaGuard. Uh, we had some foundation issues in our house recently, or uh, well, shortly before we moved in, actually. So I can sympathize, and so uh, best of luck and Godspeed with all those repairs. Uh, Thank Joe, you. Joe, how about you? Hi everybody. Uh, thanks. Yeah, as she said, my name is Joe Cernelia. Uh, I am a, a banker by trade, but I'm a, I, my passion has always been literature and uh, performing arts. Uh, I have degrees in finance and in literature, and um, I am also a huge, huge devotee of the Wheel of Time universe and of Robert Jordan, so I'm just thrilled that, to be included in this uh, discussion. Thank you, Joe. We're glad to have you on the show also. Uh, and I am Sarah Thomas. I am a high school English teacher by trade. I'm also an aspiring author by night. Uh, um, my book is forthcoming from New Degree Press later this year. So I'm eagerly awaiting the feedback from my revisions editor. And in the meantime, I am keeping myself distracted by watching the Wheel of Time, getting myself uh, involved in Robert Jordan's universe, and watching the TV show. And uh, I am, uh, I guess, a neophyte, if you will, uh, to Robert Jordan, to the Wheel of Time universe. But even in the short time that I have been familiar with the books and with the television series, I have been fascinated by the world that Jordan has created and the way that interactions, in particular interactions between men and women, are accounted for in this universe and have been thinking ever since I uh, first was introduced to the books that this seems like excellent fodder for a discussion for this podcast. So I'm thrilled that we're getting to have that discussion today. Uh, and before we get too much further into things, I did want to give a brief spoiler alert 
there we will be talking about uh, the book series and uh, the television series that was recently released on Amazon Prime. Those discussions are likely to contain spoilers, so uh, that is something that you might want to keep in mind uh, as you are listening. Uh, also, the show deals, uh, uh, frankly, in some instances uh, with relationships between uh, sexes, relationships um, among women, relationships among men, and then relationships between men and women. We may be delving into some of that also, so you might want to keep that in mind if there are little ears listening. So with that in mind, I thought it might be helpful for us to consider and talk a little bit about how we first encountered uh, high fantasy, uh, whether our first introductions to the realm of fantasy were high or low, um, Wheel of Time specifically, and what our initial impressions of the genre might be. So, Joe, would you like to go first on this one? Absolutely. So, yeah, I was uh, if you're generally you can pretty much count on it. If you're my age or older, which I'm in my early 40s. Then your first experience of fantasy was almost certainly Tolkien related, whether you watched the movies or read the books. Uh, so if you, you if you were came in my age or older then high fantasy is what you saw. High fantasy is generally the, the, the quick and dirty way to look at this is high fantasy. You can think of as the Bible with dragons. And low fantasy, you could think of as the West Wing with dragons. So high fantasy deals with cosmogony, cosmology, the grand sweep of history, saving humanity from evil, things like that. Uh, low fantasy tends to be about politics, about interpersonal relationships, about uh, keeping the kingdom away from these other bad people who want to take the kingdom away. And there might be magic, there might not, there might be dragons, there might not. But it's generally, if, if, if the fate of humanity is on the line, then you're talking about high fantasy. If the kingdom is on the line or your farmstead is on the line, then it's going to be low fantasy. There's, I'm, I'm sure we'll get lots of comments about how that definition is dead wrong or misses all the nuance. And it certainly misses all the nuance. But you'll never go wrong if you take that as your, as your guide for, uh, for high and low fantasy. So, yeah, I was a, a high fantasy person. Uh, from the beginning, um, I read through uh, A Song of Ice and Fire and watched the show Game of Thrones. Uh, so I have a, a, a decent understanding of low fantasy as well. And then I came to uh, Robert Jordan once I realized that uh, George R. R. Martin hates us and is never going to finish A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and that's when I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, I've read it four times. I started, went all one, book one through 14. And that same day that I finished the 14th book, I opened Eye of the World again and started all over and read them straight through again. I've read them twice since. So that's my history with this book series, and I love it. Thank you so much for that. And I appreciate the quick and dirty definition of the distinction between high and low fantasy. I hope that's helpful for our readers. Uh, I know, as I mentioned already, I'm a neophyte to this world, so trying to keep those distinctions in mind I'm sure will be helpful for us as we move forward. Uh, Laurie, how about you? Your introduction to fantasy, Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan, um, what you find compelling about the genre broadly? Okay, so um, 
I will be the exception that proves Joe's rule that my introduction to fantasy was actually not Lord of the Rings. Um, it was technically Myths of Avalon because we read that before Lord of the Rings in the Myths, Legends, and Science Fictions class I took about 24 years ago when I was in college. And now I'm ancient. I'm going to have to take a moment and sit and, oh, I am so old right now. Um, I was, still am, who am I kidding, an unrepentant snob when I was a child and remember making fun of the boys who read and got really into the Lord of the Rings um, because ugh, nerds. Um, and then I stumbled into this class because I, I liked the teacher a lot and we had to read the classics, like starts with Mist of Avalon for some reason, I guess. Uh, then we read a lot of chivalric romance, then Lord of the Rings. We read uh, the first book of Dune and the class finished with the eye of the world. And I wrote my little 19 year old paper on how derivative it was and marking off all of the things that it stole from every book we read all semester. And then my conclusion was, I cannot wait to get the next one. So, uh, I feel you with the absolute addiction because the work, this, these books are all about creating a completely immersive world. My problem is that by around book 10, it felt like uh, Robert Jordan had gotten bored with his own plot and mostly wanted to play around with his world. And so I got bored with his books and kind of got fed up. And I think I finished 10, but I never went back. And so when the the TV show came out, I remember, oh, I love the first of it. I'm so curious about what they're going to do. Also, I love Rosamund Pike. She's great. Let's let's give it a shot. And watching it, it probably been. Yeah, it'd been like 20 years since I'd, I'd read the books or read Eye of the World, rather. And so I had forgotten a lot of the details, but I had this sense that, hey, aren't that I don't remember it happening quite that way. And so I had to sit down and start rereading and so around christmas i started getting my old copies back and i'm about halfway through book eight now and it is my goal by the end of 2022 it's probably going to ha happen faster that i'm going to read all 14 books plus the new spring and maybe some of the ancillary materials maybe that is That's an ambitious right. project <laughs> No, that's spectacular. And I, I, I did I have skipped New Spring on all of my read throughs. Once once through was was enough for that one. But but yeah, it's uh, uh, I'm I'm with you. The, that's a good way to phrase it, too. He does get like, yes, yeah, th th they call that the slog books, let's say seven through eleven uh, colloquially. And it, it gets pretty tired. Like if I hear one more time about the lace on this bodice or, or something like that. Yeah. I didn't notice it so badly the first time through, um, well, but yeah, the, yeah. Second, the second time through, I like the, I started skipping chapters. Like I would skip big portions of of Perrin's arc while uh, uh, while uh, he was dealing with Fael's absence. I won't say any more than that for spoilers. And I would skip big portions of of um, uh, the the Andor succession 
because yeah, it's just it's just them dickering, you know, for three for a thousand pages. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. It's and and that's interesting. It's kind of interesting. It's where Jordan abandons high fantasy for low fantasy that the slog begins. And I, I think it is really interesting that his clear uh, the joy that he got from writing this, because in some of these chapters, it's it's just clear that he is having the best time ever writing these things. But that's all when it is about the sort of myth of this and how meta, the meta, metaphysics of this world works. He wants to talk about these big global issues, but he mires himself in the West Wing of it all. And then, I, oh, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. I'm going to scream about how much I hate the Shanchen, but I'm going to finish. Well, without any spoilers, the, once you get to book 11, through book 11, the payoff is absolutely worth. I it's It really, really all comes together beautifully. So I have there, heard there's something to look forward to. Yeah, many people have told me that basically... After, if I got through where I stopped, it got much better. <laughs> you really were within within a hair's breadth of the uh, of the of the payoff. So, bad luck. <laughs> well, after hearing both of y'all talk about it, uh, I am even more excited to get through the book series um, after being encouraged for the better part of two years, three, four, I'm not sure how long it was, to pick up this series and give it a chance. I started working my way through the audiobook for Eye of the World a couple of years ago. And um, Eye of the World was a little bit challenging for me to get through, but by the end of book two, I was fully on board with this world that has uh, that had been created, and with the with the uh, Laurie, I think you referred to it as the mythic elements and the cosmology of this universe. And that's when I started getting particularly interested in what we might be able to do with uh, a discussion of this series and uh, on the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, outside of Wheel of Time, I think my very earliest introductions, I am part of the, the Tolkien uh, School of Exposure to Fantasy uh, by way of The Hobbit, which was required summer reading when I was in the seventh grade and which I hated and didn't pick up any more Tolkien after that, but I did watch all of the Peter Jackson films. And again, I take them or leave them, but I got really wrapped up in uh, Game of Thrones in the television series. And I know that we've talked about that being low fantasy more so than high fantasy, although um, I did think that that series did some pretty fascinating things with the character arcs of the women characters on that show, which was not something I had expected, particularly in the early seasons of, of the TV show. And so then, um, so that happened before my introduction to Robert Jordan. And, um, and now I might be willing to give a Song of Ice and Fire, a chance. But before I do that, I want to get my way through uh, what is referred to as the slog. 
and I am currently uh, listening to the audiobooks. I have 22 minutes left in book seven, so Crown of Swords for Wheel of Time, but I have watched the first season of the television show. So speaking of that, um, if Joe, if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a brief background of the book series and an elevator pitch uh, blurb on the TV show adaptation, that would be helpful. So big, you know, big basic idea if you can do it in maybe five minutes or less. Well, that's an ambitious task, but I'll give it a swing. Um, one of the things that uh, we were talking about, Laurie and I, in, in preparation for this episode, was uh, I, the the adaptation aspect of this. Um, and uh, because it's such a huge project, uh, the book series, and because adapting it in a doing a scene for scene remake would just be absurdly expensive, it wouldn't be feasible, not in Isaac Newton's universe. So what we discussed was perhaps giving this a uh, treating this not as an adaptation of Jordan's books, but as if Jordan retold an ancient myth. And here we have Rafe Judkins retelling the same myth that Jordan retold. That way we don't have to get caught up and, well, why'd they change this and blah, blah, blah. We won't know why they changed everything until the end of the series because it's such an expansive uh, universe and there's so many plots and you have to combine them and get getting from... from uh, <laughs> Moraine finding the Taviran in Emmons Field all the way to the end, you couldn't possibly take the same route. So I think the, the, we, we sort of agreed the most effective way to discuss this is just two separate tellings of the same myth. Um, for Jordan, I think the, 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 if you had to pick one theme to carry you through from the beginning to the end, from uh, the eye of the world all the way through a memory of light, you could say that he switched the power dynamic between men and women and then told your typical fantasy story as if that were the case. So in very in many, many ways, it's especially it starts off very much like the Lord of the Rings. Wizard comes to town, tells these youths that the world, the, you know, the fate of the world is is in their hands and they have to come come with me or the, or everyone dies. And then they have their little quest, which is, ex again, that's. You, you can't really call it a fantasy story if you don't start with that. Um, but what he, but, but by, by swapping the power dynamic between the men and women and something you said, well, you know, we'll get to that later. But that's really how you could, I think, cast this, uh, you know, and, and any serious reader of fantasy and any serious understander of of power dynamics between the sexes could almost tell the same story just with those premises. But it's just it's really brilliantly done the way the way Jordan cast this. I saw uh, recast, cast, not not selecting actors, but cast as in a cast in a mold. So, does that uh, does that answer a question? Or do we need more on that one? You think? I think it's a great jumping off point, and I have a a twist to add to that. Out, sorry, I just bumped my elbow. I think Jordan is very specifically taking the standard tropes, the cliches of fantasy and extrapolating them to their logical end. And one of the things that you find is the, like the Frodo is the most boring character in the Lord of the Rings, right? So Rand, 
is the most boring character in the Wheel of Time. Then you've got the wizards of it all, and you have you have everything that he cribs from all of those uh, books that I mentioned. You've got the the, the feminine uh, mystique uh, power source magic-y things stolen from mists of time. You've got almost Fremen um, in the Aiel. Like, he's taken... You've, you've got Nazgul. You've, he's taken all of these cliches from classics, jumbled them together, and said, now what happens if we follow them through? I'm not deconstructing. I'm taking it to its absolute logical end. And I think one of the only ways that he was able to make that work was that pretty impressive um, flip on the wizards of it all. Uh, though I, I, I do want to come back to the the way he hamstrings himself with some gender essentialism in, in there. But it is a really cool move that he does, that he says, yeah, I know this is derivative. I'm trying to see what happens if you take the derivation to its end. That's brilliant. That's I think that's exactly right. Yep. Well done. Well, speaking of that, should that be part uh should that be our next discussion point for how Jordan is uh and how the series uh whether we want to focus on early parts of the book or the television uh television retelling of Jordan's retelling of this story um, as far as uh, how the series navigates navigates some of these tropes. So we keep talking about the uh, the flipping of the wizarding. So should we discuss uh, should we discuss that first and then see where our discussion goes? Well, I think a basic description of the cosmogony of this of this world really. Under, it's it's the foundation of any conversation that you're going to have about it because it's it's very literally the root of his story. So there is the one power from the true source. It's the energy that makes reality. It has space, time, space, time all woven together, and it's described uh, by the humans who interact with it as as a source of power that they are able to, ch some people are able to channel that it is also represented by a weave of time, a, wo a wheel, a pattern that comes in. It's all cyclical. What has happened will always happen again. Everything is pattern and, and shifts, subtle shifts, but there's one sort of like this age, this stuff happens, the age ends, a new age begins, and then, wait, that first age comes back. And at the heart of all of this is the true power. Humans express the true power as a gendered uh, idea. Uh, yeah, I, I lost where I, I put, I, I, that was not a grammatically structured, well-structured sentence, and I apologize for that. But the, humans describe the ability to access this magical energy of the world through highly gendered terms. And it's the access to this, this energy power that creates political power, creates religious power, creates social interaction. It informs the way people think about how countries run, how history works. 
their responsibilities to each other, the stereotypes that they see in each other. Everything comes back to this sort of cosmic energy from the creator and the dark one. Yeah. So then would it be fair to say that there is a there this world does incorporate good and evil uh but does so uh but does so in a slightly different way than we might have seen elsewhere? I would say that the 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 and that's a, a good thing to talk about on a on a podcast with the word Christian in the name is that's probably the biggest deviation from from Christian dogma is that in this case, in the in the world of of the wheel of time, there's a, good and evil are a balance. It's it's much more Taoist or Manichaean than uh, uh, than Christianity, whereas Christianity would basically treat evil as just the absence of good. Whereas in in the wheel of time and in, in uh, I don't want to make it sound like I'm an expert in Taoism at all, but uh, in, the Manichaean heresy was def was that there was there's evil and that's just as powerful as good and there's a battle going on between the two of course that's not how we see things as christians um but uh the the there's a a a dichotomy in everything in the wheel of time so man woman good evil uh sidene and sidar which are the uh, the two halves sidene and sidar are the two halves of the the one power so it's the one power but there's sidar which is the uh the female half and sidene which is the male half um and uh, I think we, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Never mind. But yes, I think you're exactly right that the uh, the, the dichotomy is really the uh, the move the motive force between everything in this story. And I think it's important to hit on that Taoist that specifically that Taoist tradition because the Aes Sedai, who are the wizards in this world, their ancient symbol is a yin yang, and that's also important because now this is a big spoiler. The world of the Wheel of Time is our world. At some point, one of the main characters encounters a Mercedes car badge, and the show, even in the very first episode, leans into this by showing us a city, a, a recognizable city, completely overrun. We, the Wheel of Time is our world at a different point in time. So the fact that we would call it Taoist is really important. And the idea that Manichaeism could be underlying this, the way that the people in these, in this series talk about cosmogony is very important because it, it's all ultimately from our own traditions. And I think that is Jordan's most brilliant move. It's also one of the things that drives me crazy about some of the implications of what he suggests, but the fact that this is our world Oh, man, I love it. Like we are Game of Thrones. That is not our world. That is not how springtime works. Wheel of Time that the fact that at some point Rand witnesses the Challenger explosion. Yup, I'm here for that. And I I really want the the TV show to show it. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, because I'd seen, you know, read through it so many times and uh, the especially for the first several books, the, the indications that this might be, you know, our world at some point, you know, well before or well after we're sitting here was uh, it, I didn't catch it right away through, through my first read through, but yeah, the show 
definitely puts it right in uh, right in your face. But even in the very first book, there's uh, Tom Marilyn, who who I was so disappointed wasn't in the first series, first uh, episodes more. Uh, he makes he sings some songs about some things. If you pay attention. Oh, wait, that's the 20th century America happening right there. So, yeah, it's uh, it really is. Like you said, it's so subtle and so brilliant the way he did that. So. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that we mentioned just a little bit ago uh, had to do you you all uh, highlighted the Manichaeist or the Taoist uh, influences on Jordan's series and uh, how what the implications of that might be, particularly the gendered components. Um, and the gendered components are actually one of the things that I found most fascinating. So that there are the two halves of the one source and uh, the the wizards, the people who can channel this power, um, the ability to channel the power affects people differently. Um, so uh, what do you all think would be the best way to talk about that and some of its implications uh, for for the series itself, for uh, understanding the lessons such as there might be from the series and how we could understand those from a Christian perspective. I will say that the gender essentialism is something that has always irked me about these books because it, they do so much so well um, that the idea that gender is a binary and it's so strictly built into the world troubles me. And one of the things I was doing in getting ready for this podcast is it's like looking up articles from people who are trying to redeem it and be like, it, there's a, there, it's not all grody. And um, one, one thing people are finding ways to find difference, uh, whether it's through Nynaeve, who as a character is the exact opposite of the feminine as described by uh, the the Aes Sedai. Like, she, she can only access the source if she's furious. Like she has to be positively livid when, it, when we meet her and to even glance at the source, which should not happen. The women should have to be super calm and surrender. And yet Nynaeve grabs it by, by Nope, not going to say that word. G Network grabs hold of it and forces her will upon upon this cosmic power in the way that men are described as doing. So there are moments where the easy, lazy gender essentialist binary is broken, and people are finding ways to reclaim a non-binary. Not not necessarily like an envy approach to things. So there are trans characters, though they're evil. And we're, yeah, so that's another thing. But there are ways of getting around what at first feels gross. As, especially for me as, as a woman who, um, like, resists a lot of, like, hyper-feminine culture for for myself i was always annoyed at the well, why couldn't everybody just be like men i would I, I would be wearing trousers i got short hair come on y'all and then finding this community on the internet who are like no we have we have a solution i felt really a lot better about loving these books 
just to clarify, uh, Laurie, when you said I want to be like Min, were you referring to M-I-N, the character in the first books, or were you referring to plural of man? Oh, because I I'm was not- absolutely referring to Elmendred of Farshaw. Yes, M-I-N. Uh, right. Sorry. Got, no, got wrapped no. up in my own excitement. <laughs> no, because that's you know that's one of the least subtle moments I think in all of of Jordan is uh, is uh, yeah the 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 girl with the short hair who wears the tight trousers all the time or wears trousers all the time. Her name is Min, and you get this, especially if you if you only read the audio if you only listened to the audiobooks, you didn't know that it wasn't spelled M E N. So that was uh, kind of a club you over the head with the uh, with the gender uh, con- uh, conflict there. Um, I'm going to speak in uh, a little bit in defense of the gender essentialism here, not because I think gender essentialism is important in the world, but it's uh, I, I because Jordan pulls so broadly from historical cultures all over uh, our universe, like the one that we humans live in now. Uh, the idea that gender is not uh, a you know a strict part of the uh, uh, of creation itself is yeah the idea that there's any fluidity to it at all that's happened here and now that's brand new and that happens just about here and of, of course there's 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 places and times in in history but for the vast majority of human history in almost all places and times that was understood to be the bedrock of of, of human existence i'm not defending it as a moral position but i'm saying it, it fits really really well with you know cast taking all of humanity and cast, uh, crashing it together into one fantasy series, it's it would be I think it would be disingenuous of him not to use uh, the, that construct as a defining characteristic of, of this world that he's building uh, to say nothing of the morality or correctness of it. It is certainly one of those bedrock cliches that he 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 starts his um, bedrock of the series from. Right. And and like a lot of the other cliches that he then blows up by exactly. just following them that the gender thing does start to change after a while. So yes. y'all who are just now experiencing it, starting the books confused by some of my complaints already and references to people that you haven't met yet. Uh, it, it changes things. It's it, it, the books are fluid. Now, whether or not the show is, I think that's an interesting thing to to come back to because the TV show has already tried to back away from such essentialism. Even the idea that the central hero, the dragon reborn in the series, could have been man or woman, despite the um, metaphysics of Jordan's books suggesting that it would be a male like through this reincarnation process the the dragon reborn the dragon soul would appear again in a male and if it and if the the hero who saves human saves all of reality were a woman it would be a different historical hero a different legend that would be reborn um but the tv show pro- probably in a re- in response to the the way that our current culture uh, understands uh, gender um, has already made strides to wiggle up and dirty up that binary, and and we see it not just in 
characters like men, men, Southern accents are hard with, with those two words, but you also see it with the way that the Aes Sedai interact. You see more of it with Nynaeve's characterization and Egwene on the show. It's the show seems to be trying to say it's not just men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Well, um, I'm glad you all uh, made both of those points because they they uh, touch on something that I had been wondering about. And Laurie, as you were talking just now, um, I was thinking about what you were saying about the, the show's effort to introduce the possibility that the dragon reborn uh, could be, you know, the the you know, the savior of the universe uh, could be man or woman, uh, I think circles back to something that I have been thinking about a lot since my first encounters with, uh, with the books and to a lesser extent with the TV show, which is that in these two halves of the one power and uh, the way, uh, the differences between the way um, men channel the one power and women channel the one power and there is also the mythology of the breaking of the world and uh which always which has sounded to me since the very beginning like uh like something that draws on um uh traditions or mythologies um in well for example in the christian tradition in eden and the fall and whereas in um you know uh well i guess depending on um you know depending on uh whose perspective um or which sources you're taking a look at um as far as commentary on the fall in genesis uh whereas the the trope has become that woman was the cause of the fall uh in the Genesis narratives in Jordan, it's the um, in Jordan, it's the male half of the one power that's the that's the source of the breaking of the world. Am I am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yes, it's okay. actually male hubris, which ends up leading to the metaphysical events that drive the breaking of the world. So, okay. So with that in mind, then, I wonder if that uh, if there's a way to uh, to put the uh, restoration of the world uh, in a similarly uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to how to frame this. Uh, so part of my thought was that, yes, yeah, so if woman is not responsible for the breaking of the world in Jordan's universe, uh, that seems like a pretty powerful upending of some of the, uh, you know, of some of uh, the the mythologies that exist. Um, as a result of that, if men, you know, if man has broken the world, and then does it make sense for a dragon reborn who is male to restore the world, or uh, would it make sense for a possibility for a woman to be able to restore the world? And I'm trying to think now of a, of a parallel for, you know, uh, creation's uh, salvation or restoration. And I'm not quite sure if I'm getting too far into the weeds here. Uh, but 
is there is there something that we might be able to do with that as far as um you know, as far as trying to understand the potential for the Dragon Reborn or as a potential, uh, not not flexibility, but uh, exploration of the possibilities um, of a gendered understanding of the universe. I think there is. The, and, uh... Yeah, Joe, Joe, you can hold off on any specific details that I might get wrong because I, I don't normally mind spoilers, but I have a sense that the story is pushing towards this idea that the problem is always going to be separating. separating. It's uh, The only solution is when people come together. You have men and women equally working together, and uh, every, everything I have read thus far, and it definitely seems like on the TV show as well, it's when you diverge and insist on difference and separation that problems happen. It's when then people come back together and c- make community and, and balance and harmony, not necessarily unity um, with, all, with all of these differences uh, that positive things happen. In the, uh, in the discussion boards about the wheel of time, and this is probably true with other, other book series, uh, when people ask questions, that will ultimately be answered further on down. It's R-A-F-O, read and find out. Um, and the only thing I'm going to say is about that is that it worries me a little bit that they've started that so early in the series because it it feels like it's going to take a lot of the teeth out of the one of the biggest payoffs of the series. Uh, it, it be, but yeah, it uh, you're right, uh, Sarah, that it uh, by by creating this sort of Edenic second age, the age of legends, and then having it be the, the it, it, that I think that was really to, uh, Jordan did that brilliantly and on purpose to, 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 to hammer home the, the power dynamic switch that there's not only are the women more powerful, they're also not the ones that are to blame for the fall. Like men are, are, are in a lesser position. They're evil of, and, it's their fault we're we're in this right now. So it, it was that sort of completes the whole uh, swap, if you will, uh, between uh, the two thousand years of, of Christian tradition and our uh, and or departure from Christian tradition, if you want, and uh, and the wheel of, of time. But yeah, uh, R A F O on uh, on the the whether or not the dragon has to be a male. And whether or not the, it's the male's responsibility to uh, to save the world. Okay, or I have whether or not. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you go. Go ahead. Go. I was going to. Or whether or not. Sorry, not the males, but the dragon. Excuse me, not the dragon's responsibility to save the world. Thank you. I appreciate the way that you have phrased that. I now have um, thoughts that I will keep to myself because they're my own head cannon. But I do have a question, and I wonder: Is this now? Can we talk about? the differences between these two adaptations. Um, the show, one of the things I, 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 I've come to terms with with the show is that I, I cannot see them intending to be on for 14 years. So some of these changes, while they, they feel like wearing somebody else's shoes, uh, they have to be because it can't reasonably have a TV series. Like Supernatural aside, you can't reasonably have a TV series that just runs that long. It's too expensive, right? 
Surely, surely. And that's one of the, the yeah. The, so that's why it's, it's so difficult to even start commenting on the changes that they've made, because in order to tackle this series, he must have an idea of how he wants to get, I say he, Rafe Judkins, must have an idea of how he intends to get from from Emmons Field to uh, to the the end. And so to say that, oh, why do they make that change? We have no idea. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of the chatter has been like, why are they even bother making it a live action movie? They should have done it animated. That way they could have had the characters only age the three years that the, uh, the book series takes versus, like you said, 14 years of 14 seasons of television and stuff like that. So because it's such a different prospect making a TV series, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you're, you're exactly right. There's, there's no sense in trying to, to make that comparison. So since, okay, let's, let's play with this some more. So since Jordan has built this world as, as cyclical and uh, there's, there's the Nietzsche, there's an eternal return, right? If our experience of the TV show is a cyclical return to the story that we experience in the books. Okay. So what, what do we think it says about whether or not, the pattern, the wheel of time, the creator has us learning something. Is it an improvement? Are we moving closer to a an ideal? Are we approaching a sort of nirvana with some of these subtle changes? Does that have does that fit in with the metaphysics of this world? Uh, what do you guys think? I think that is an amazing question, and I don't know how to begin answering that one. Joe, do you want to take that one? Uh, I'm going to start. Short answer, R-A-F-O, because that does get addressed later on. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Long long answer. Uh, yes, in fact, that, that, that fits entirely with our own little construct here is that, you know, we're in – we're maybe we're in the fourth age now. Robert Jordan wrote the Wheel of Time in the third about about in the third age, about the third age. We're in the fourth age now. So it it it, it garners a retelling, a different understanding of uh, of the nature of gender in our world and the nature of power in our world and the nature of evil in our world. So absolutely that that ports really nicely. That. I, I have oh gosh now I have so many new headcanon thoughts about like books 11, 12, 13, and fourteen that I, I I'm curious to see how they how how they play out I've been pretty good about predicting things so far except for my hatred of the Shanshan uh, it clouds my vision there so okay so if we're moving closer to perfection if because Let's, isn't that our goal as actual Christians in the actual world of the actual right now? Like step by step, baby, towards towards per- perfection in Christ. It's an impossibility. You know, my my theology theology um, says it's impossible in this world because this world we have a theodicy that says that evil exists, right? Like corruption is is present, so you can't have per- perfection, but you can learn, you can strive, you can learn. So is that a way that we see a, a see Christian? So I think we've solved the problem of feminism, but is this how we see the Christian in in this? Ah, uh, gosh, that's interesting. How do we? How do we? Because the dragon 
certainly is not a Christ figure. No, no, um, he is not. And uh, no. not even like you could, you could not even in the way you could say that, uh, that, uh, Harry Potter is, um, look, I'm not a new critic. I am totally comfortable putting the writer's conscience into the creation of the story. Um, Robert Jordan was a U.S. Army helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he uh, what he came away with primarily was that war is bad and killing is bad. And I know that's a, it sounds like an absurd thing to say, but most people that go to combat don't come away with that. They come away with killing is what happens. I'm just not going to be the one that gets killed. So so it's he, he had a unique experience uh, killing hundreds of people. Uh, and he'll, he got a reputation as being called the Iceman among his uh, because it didn't seem to affect him when, in fact, it affected him tremendously. Um, and the idea that he wanted another chance, that's where the, the, the it's rumored anyway, that, that, that that's where he got this sort of idea about the wheel turning is that we screwed this one up really bad. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if we had another try at this? Um, so I think. It could be rooted in an in, in anxiety about the sort of Judeo-Christian world he grew up in, wherein you got one chance to make this right, and oops, you didn't hell, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm more than willing to concede that that uh, that uh, connection there. Uh, but yeah, the departure between the uh, the linear and the circular nature of time, uh, I think it's consciously stepping away from the Christian tradition there. Okay, my brain is is bubbling up with ideas. This is really really interesting. The that we could be working toward the same ultimate metaphysical goal of a reuniting with the perfection in the term in in the form of the creator. We are separated from perfection currently, and in Jordan's vision of a circular not circular a uh, cyclical uh, approach to the experience of time as opposed to a strictly linear appear like we could get into the actual physics of how our, our understanding of linear time is really just a limit of 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 how we experience uh, corporeality and how actual time is a fabric that can stretch in any direction at any time. And we are, we're like tiny little water droplets on your shower curtain and can only go in one way. And so we only see that as one way, but if we're all working toward a, a re joining with divinity, maybe no, I'm going to that's this is me somehow stumbling upon a new religion and I am not here to start a cult today. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, I'm I'm not prepared to say there's nothing there. I just don't think the three of us are going to suss it out today. Uh at least not without ruining the end of the books. Episode 2. Fair fair enough. I would, fair enough. I would be thrilled to to join again and discuss this again after season 2 for the record. Oh, me too. Absolutely. Well, I am, I am thrilled to hear that because, uh, because I know we are, uh, we've been going for the better part of an hour now. And 
I know that in some respects we've barely scratched the surface of uh, this series itself um, and the the television show. And I would love to, to keep this conversation going. I do feel like this world and the questions it raises are worth an, an extended exploration. So, yes, I will, I will check with the, the powers that be here with the Christian Humanist Radio Network and see if we can't uh, possibly get a sub-series going as the, um, you know, as the, the new seasons of the television show are released and as we all continue to work our way through the through the books either for the first time or on a reread um so with that in mind shall we uh shall we go ahead and uh promise to uh what is it joe rafo and possibly return to this table to continue this discussion pinky swear all right. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Without objection, so Aye. Aye, so die. Ha-ha. Uh, <laughs> that was terrible. I love zing. it. Zing. <laughs> All right. And on that note, we're going we're gonna to call this discussion done and move on to passing on. So, uh, Joe, would you like to share with us what you're passing on today? Absolutely. And I did not know that our discussion would go into exactly what it did um, when I chose to this, but I'm, it worked out pretty nicely given uh, our discussion of where we are in the world and how religion brought us there. Um, I'm passing on How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization by Thomas E. Woods. It's a, uh, Thomas Woods is a, uh, is a Harvard and Columbia historian, um, and he writes very clear pop history, which is to say that he writes it for, it's a, it's a, it's a re relentlessly researched book written, but written for a popular audience. And it really gives you a, a, a tremendous understanding of some of the things that, some of the misunderstandings that people are just sort of pick up in their traditional uh, K through senior of college education about uh, the history of Western civilization. Um, and uh, in particular, uh, uh, just one little snippet that I learned, uh, he gave me a whole different outlook on Henry VIII, which uh, I, I never, never considered before. So as a little bit of spoiler, if whether you like Henry VIII or or hate him, you'll learn something interesting about him based on if, if you pick up how the Catholic Church built Western civilization. All right. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I've been meaning to pick this one up for a while and haven't gotten around to it yet. So I might I might have to do that shortly, add it to my to be read list after I get through uh, the rest through the slog in the wheel of time. For the record, real quick, I forgot to mention, you don't have to be Catholic or even like Catholic Catholicism to to appreciate and learn from this book. It's not a polemic at all. It's just history. All right. Thank you very much for that clarification. Laurie, what do you have for us today? Uh, I, I'm going to direct you guys to one of the articles I found when I was doing my how do I solve a problem like uh, gender essentialism. Uh, and I, I found it really beautiful. It's a sort of a, pers a very short personal essay uh, called Swan Sanchi and Finding Transgender Experience in the Wheel of Time by Silas K. Barrett. It's uh, about... One author's or one one reader 
finding themselves unexpectedly in 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 the strangest of places and it's it has a really good approach to not only the books at like an open kind of unbiased approach to the books that appreciates it and also can point out what what it does wrong but it's just a it made me reconsider several characters that I had dismissed um, since they aren't my favorite character, Matt. All right. Thank you very much for that. That sounds like a a really fascinating read also. Um, My recommendation, my passing on for this time around is a work by uh, a woman named Terry Polakovic. Polakovic, I'm so sorry. I do not. uh, I was trying to figure out how to pronounce your name and I couldn't find the pronunciation guide. So if you would like to write the show and correct us, I will take that criticism gladly. Her work uh, that I'm passing on is called Women of Hope, Doctors of the Church. Uh, The Bible study I've been part of since uh, last fall picked this one as our most recent book study, and it discusses the four women who have been declared doctors of the church. So it covers uh, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Therese of Lisieux, and uh, St. Hildegard, who was uh, who is the most recently named woman doctor of the church. Um, fascinating uh, stories of their lives, how they uh, came to do the things that they did about their relationships with God, and a fascinating, fascinating reading. So, uh, Women of Hope, Doctors of the Church. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, Or if you want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Lori Norris and Joe Cernelia, I'm Sarah Thomas. Tune in in two weeks for our next episode when we'll discuss the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.